It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Our guest today is joining us from New York City. And New York City is a city that I've had a lot of fondness for throughout my life. I think it's a city that a lot of Americans or people around the world actually have passion for. Sometimes positive passion, sometimes negative passion, depends on your viewpoint, I suppose. And growing up, it was very close, only a few hours from where I lived. And I would go there oftentimes when I was visiting my family in New Jersey. And I would just get so excited to go into the city. I really wanted to study at NYU. We've actually mentioned a few times on the show because Jason has a similar crossover with NYU. When I was gearing up to study film production, I applied to the Tisch School of Arts and I didn't get into college there. And I was really sad. So I went to college in Boston instead. And the very first week of college is when 9-11 happened. And it's amazing how anytime I talk about 9-11, I feel emotional about it. I think many people that have a very visceral memory of what that day was like may react the same way. And it was fascinating for me, given my passion for New York and the desire to live there and then be confronted with truly a life-changing event for the entire world and the ripple effect that that's had on us. Another crossover, we'll get into why that story resonates as we learn more about our guest today. But another crossover was in 2019, I was attending, I believe it was the San Francisco version of this show. I can actually check my records right now. I was attending this event called Fancy Food Show and going around and trying a lot of different products. And I came across one that really stood out. And perhaps it, you know, it's interesting now when I look back over my notes, it might have even been the Natural Products Expo because this is a note from spring 2019. But I recall it being Fancy Food Show. Regardless, I tried some of the most incredible chocolates I've ever had. And this, like, I'm at a loss for words to describe a hot chocolate that I had and had this just wonderful experience with the person at this company named Elements Truffles. And that is the company that our guest founded and runs with his wife. And I'm just so excited to explore all different facets of this amazing guest that we have today. So welcome to the show, Kushal. Thank you so much for being here. I have to say that when we heard about you, I was reading through your story and your upcoming book, which by the time this episode comes out, I suppose that book has come out at that point. It is called On a Wing and a Prayer. And it is a book that I can't wait to read because I have clearly a deep fascination and a lot of emotions around 9-11 and how that impacted me as a college student in Boston and had a ripple effect on so many people's lives. And so when I read that, I thought, wow, 
I can't wait to talk to this man and hear more about his experience. So thank you for being here. Thank you for writing that book. And thank you for creating Elements Truffles. (laughs) So that's the kind of backstory of why I cannot wait to connect more with you here today. Thank you. I just, you know, you speaking through that emotion is coming through this connection, through this electronic platform is touching me straight into my heart. So thank you for for setting up this platform that's so authentic, open, and thank you for having me here. You're very welcome. And it might get emotional for me, which can, for some people can be an uncomfortable thing. One thing I'm curious about, Kushal, is speaking of books about 9-11, one book I read last year that I was so moved by is called The Unthinkable. Do you know about this book? I'm afraid, no, I have not read that book. I was almost wondering if you had been like featured in it of some sort because it's about how people survive disasters. And the book, I believe the first example they give is 9-11. And it's just a phenomenal book sharing all of these tragedies that have happened and how people physically survived them. But it doesn't really get into the emotional side of surviving something like that. And clearly for me... 9-11, I was fortunate. I, to my recollection, don't know anyone who was in the towers as you were. You were in the towers. That's correct. At the time? At the time when the first plane hit the North Tower. You were in the North Tower. I was on the mezzanine floor, which was shared across both North and South Tower. But yes, I was in the North Tower part of the floor. Like beyond comprehension to me to hear that, because even though... I've watched and read so much about that event and thinkable being an example of where they had interviewed and compiled stories of people who had survived. It still feels like unbelievable that someone like you made it through that event and also made it through in in so many remarkable ways to shift your life into all these different directions like elements, truffles. So I don't even know where to begin with... (laughs) how to start this conversation because I'm I could just listen to you talk about this subject for hours. So let me ask you, what right now is something that you want to share about that experience? What has been and maybe maybe how it correlates with some current events? For example, at the time of this recording, are hearing a lot about what's happening in Afghanistan. And that obviously is tied to 9-11 in some ways. So I'm curious like how you've been feeling during this specific time in August 2021. What type of emotions is it bringing up for you and thoughts? And how is that guiding your process as you're releasing this new book on your experiences? You know, at the end of the day, all the losses, all the tragic events, they appear different on the surface, but viscerally, they somehow evoke the same emotions. They just create the same discomfort straight in your gut, which which just makes you so uncomfortable and different people process it differently. And I've had my fair share of going through it. I've had almost 20 years to process it. And of course I've had, we'll talk more about it, the tools and techniques that have helped me a lot, but you're right. The contemporary events, what's happening right now in the world, it, you can't, but go back to that feeling. First, it was pandemic. I mean, it it was the beginning of the, or, or right through the middle of it, I was, you know, the same things kept coming back. Of course, the way I handled them was very differently, but it's not in a sense how it impacts your consciousness. It's no different. 
where one begins to question, what is it that you're really doing here? What is the whole point of all this? I think two aspects to it. One is the emotional aspect where you process certain emotions, whether it's grief or whether it's uh, discomfort. But the other aspect of it is some sort of questioning the status quo that ensues after you experience this. Once that you can only you can only be sad for so long, right? Your emotions constantly change. In fact, every two and a half days, your emotion changes. You can be sad for longer, but after two and a half days, it might shift and then you might experience that same sadness again. And those with that changes, you can actually experience that for a perpetual time. You're always in that emotion for a long period of time. You may never even experience that because it's like eating the same sweet thing again and again without it. You stop tasting it. So these are the periods, these are the times which makes us question the big picture, makes us question there has to be more to life than what meets the eye. There has to be a bigger purpose. What is really my purpose to be here? Am I here to just do nine to five? Am I here just to chase bigger Wall Street bonuses? Am I here to just run companies and, and make them successful? Am I doing the right thing, what I'm doing with my time? Everybody has a finite time on this planet. So times like these in my life have given me an opportunity to just take a step back, just pause a bit. Otherwise, we are so entrenched in the current of time, getting swept away by what we are doing, not able to tell day from night, <laughs> week from months. But such events, I personally, they have created an impact on me where it has gotten me to just pause and take stock of my life, create that, okay, you know, I'm just going to pause here and see if I'm on the right track. Am I doing what I'm here to do? Do I even know what I'm here to do? My curiosity in this experience you're describing, Kushal, is I think in times of shock, times of traumatic experience, times of massive change, it can be very easy for human beings to want to cling to the familiar. Whereas you're describing an opportunity where there can be this sort of quantum shift in introspection, looking at whether our lives and our actions and our choices are aligned with our highest values, aligned with our highest ethics, our conscience. But I think in times where it's so scary and unfamiliar and uncertain, it's natural to want to, I need to hold on to what I know. I need to hold on to my job. I don't know what's going to happen with the financial system. Everything could collapse. What's going to happen with the dollar? Maybe I should invest in Bitcoin. Oh my God, what's happening? It's a natural, I think, tendency for humanity to want to cling tightly to the familiar. But to your point, what you're bringing up in this opportunity to do a deeper, more authentic and honest level of introspection, how do we move past the comfort and the desire to cling to the familiar to get to that deeper layer of questioning and introspection? What tools did you use and what tools do you recommend for other people to do that and to let go of the reins a little bit? You're 100% right. I mean, I personally think it is not a matter of effort. It's not doing, it's a happening. And to be very frank with you, when 9-11 happened to me, I went into that state, going back to my comfort zone, which was retrieving from the world. The next day on 11th or after the, <laughs> or the 12th, I didn't start thinking, hmm, what's my purpose? No, I wasn't there. I was in a state of shock. I was in a sort of daze. I didn't know what I was doing. And in that state of discomfort, you like how you said, Jason, you just 
retrieve to that thing that where you find the most comfort. And for me, it was just being with myself. I didn't even talk about it. You know, I would avoid this conversation when people would ask me, everybody knew I had made it out. And so they would say, what happened? What happened? And I would just simplify the narrative and just say, oh yeah, I just stepped out. I was lucky. I was fortunate and end the story quickly, not wanting to talk about it because it made me relive that moments that discomfort came back in. So I kind of retrieved back to my comfort zone. And it was not easy. In that comfort zone, there was a void that I'd experienced, a void that I'd never felt before. You know, it was a very different kind of void. It's like a feeling of vacuum where it's like somebody just hit you with, with a hammer on the head and you you, you don't know, you, you're seeing stars kind of. What is really happening? <laughs> it was a very interesting dichotomy that I was experiencing. On one side, soon after that, I was experiencing some sort of gratitude. I was experiencing, yes, I made it out. There was a new lease to my life and it was an opportunity to to finish all the unfinished business, right? I wanted to do it all and achieve this and achieve that and stuff, go buy things that I had been postponing to. Like, just wanting to enjoy it all because here now I had a new life. But on the other hand, and I don't want to call it dispassion, it was more of a disinterest at some level where I was like, Yes, but then what's the point of it? I go pursue this, but the curtains may be drawn at any point. And so is that really any purpose of doing that? What if I was one of them that just perished that? To, to fill that void, I started traveling. I started going to exotic places. I started going to, you know, my wife and I, we took a 15-day long, you know, backpacking trip into the Patagonia, Tierra del Fuego. And we just said, all right, let's go find ourselves. It was more coming from me. Uh, she was being very supportive. I said, you know, this is where I need to be because I need to sort of get that thing to fill that void that I was looking for that juice or looking for that that impulse from somewhere. Or it was that or professionally, I was like, you know, hell with this nine to five, this comfortable job. Let me just go and let me just quit that thing and join a startup. Maybe that, that's more thrilling. So I quit my rather promising and successful Wall Street job to join a, a fund which was just two people and no track record. So I tried to do all these different things with food, with alcohol, with, with travel, with work. But every point I would go, it would, it would prove to be a momentary respite, some distraction. And I would come back to that feeling of void. I would go back, you experience something, experience a high. And then as it wore thin, I would just come back to where I started. And that was a very unsettling feeling that nothing was working. That what do I do? I tried everything within my limits of resources to go after it, but everything was proving to be just temporary distractions just for the mind. And at the end of the day, I kept going back to that feeling of void, that hole in the soul, if you will. And like how you said in the beginning, Whitney, that the New York City is a very resilient city. It forces you to live that American dream. It pushes you to almost to fit in. And whether it was my high-paced Wall Street job or was it just my vanity, I don't know what it was, but I kind of, I was probably just showing up to say, I'm fine. I'm okay. I've moved past it. This was just a matter of past. And look, I'm, I'm traveling. I'm doing this. I'm done with it. So from an onlooker's point of view, I had come out of it. But I knew within myself that I had not. But I was not ready to accept that. I was not ready to acknowledge that or definitely not ready to show that to my near and dear ones. Even with my wife, I would not really talk about it. To date, when this I was writing this book and 
some friends said, what is it about? And I, I talk about how I started from here. That's the beginning. And like, I really didn't know you had gone through all this. So a lot of my very close friends didn't know what I had really gone through. So from that stage, in that state of being, you know, trying everything, but not finding any real gratification and coming back to that void, at that point, someone suggested me this sky breath meditation technique. I said, you should try and do this breath work and meditation. And being a left brain skeptic, seeking scientific validation and proof for everything. The roots of these techniques, I'm originally from India. I, it's in my culture. But I was like, show me the data first. You know, I, it's just part of my training. You know, if, if I told my manager that I'm pulling this trade based on my intuition, based on my gut feeling, I would get whacked, right? I had to do a proper analysis, proper, thorough you know, risk profiling and say, what are the pros, cons? And as long as the probability of succeeding was more, even marginally than the success of failure, I could commit to that. But in this case, there was no data. And I'm talking about, you know, early 2000, when there were no meditation apps. Well, hell, there was no smartphone. You know, there was, there were not many influencers or nobody was talking about breath work. Yoga and spirituality was considered something out there, a pursuit for worthy of retirement. When you have a lot of time, that's when you, yeah. So all these things kind of kept me on at bay of like, you know, I don't need it. I'll do it when the time is right. But that's what good friends are. He didn't buy into my resistance as no, no, you have to try it. Don't do it if you don't want to do it, you to try it. And when I tried that breathwork for the first time, it was as if the missing piece of the puzzle kind of fell into place. All that, that I was holding on to, it was like I was able to let go of it. I was very guarded. I was like, really? Just like this breathwork and there has to be something more. Like, is there some sort of like voodoo here? Like what's going on? How, why am, I was not able to accept that I was feeling so good. I was feeling so myself, so at ease. But concepts are one thing, intellectual concept, and then your experiences are yours to keep. Right. So just for that experience, I kept coming back to it. And you asked about is a long-winded answer to your question. What were the tools and techniques? Sky breath was this real tool that came handy to me, which gave me this ability to move past. You know, when they say that you go through a, a, a trauma, there are different stages. It starts with de denial and then it's all these unpleasant things in between, depression, blah, blah, blah. And then you eventually come to acceptance. So I think this technique was like, it helped me just jump across from denial where I was in the beginning to say, hey, I'm cool, I'm fine, to straight to acceptance without having to go through the intermediate painful aspects that, that many of my colleagues, many of the people I know have gone through. So yeah, one sentence answer to that would be, you know, breath work that kind of kept me afloat throughout. And more. And it's really amazing that you're sharing this, not just here on the podcast, but in your book, because we are going through a really traumatic time as a globally. And there are things happening all across the world. And sometimes we have this like cognitive dissonance. Even during the pandemic, we can experience that because I think tra traumatic things impact us all in different ways, as you're describing. 
And sometimes it just becomes so much and we try to run from it. We try to cope with it, all of these things that you're describing. And so I think these tools and specifically the tool of breath work, which Jason and I are both advocates for ourselves, it's remarkable because you always have your breath. You're always with your breath. And unlike what you were describing where somebody could say, I don't have time for yoga, even though that might not be true, you could justify it a little, right? But you always have time to breathe. You can't help but breathe. And then if you can just spend a few seconds breathing, in a recent episode, I talked about how I was trying out a new class. It was actually called face yoga. (laughs) And before they started the exercises that that we were going to do with our face, it began with a breathwork meditation. And it was another reminder to me that how quickly my state changed from my posture to the rest of my breathing, my unconscious breathing, and my emotions and how relaxed I felt. And even though I've been experimenting with breath work for years, I still forget. And it's fascinating. Like Every time I come back to my breath, it's a reminder that that's there for me during really challenging times. So I feel grateful that you're reminding me, Jason, our listener, but also that you're reminding so many people with this book, because I think some people will react like me, where if they're fascinated by 9-11, they're probably just going to pick up your book, not expecting to learn this type of lesson. But then you include something that's so incredibly important for us in, in the current and future traumas that we will experience and how you didn't have those tools at your fingertips 20 years ago. But Now we all have that tool and that reminder thanks to people like you. And that's just remarkable that you're providing the world with that gift. I got that gift from my spiritual master, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. But, you know, what I learned from him and this really stayed with me, which is like how you said, right? It just completely shifted the state of your mind. What I learned was the very intimate connection between the breath and the mind. You know, it's like, you know, every emotion that we experience in our mind. And when I say mind, I don't mean the brain, but that field of energy where we experience the emotions where where the thoughts originate from. Any thoughts or emotions that go on in our mind, there's a corresponding rhythm of the breath in our physical body. It's like, you know, if somebody's angry, they're going to breathe very shallow and short breath. If somebody is, somebody's grieving, they have a, they're sighing, a deeper focus on exhalation, a longer exhalation. So usually the mind leads and the breath follows right behind it. Most of the time we are unaware of that shifting breath breathing patterns. But what I learned is when this whole equation can be turned on its head and it's still true, when you learn to modulate your breath in a certain way, your mind has no choice but to follow. And that was an aho moment for me that yes, just by learning, like breath and mind are so interconnected. That by just learning to modulate the breath, learning to work with the breath, I can really control, I feel how, you know, what my mind does. But otherwise, it's so difficult to control your mind. And I had tried meditating before, and I I very honestly put it in the book. I really found it excruciatingly boring because I could not meditate. The minute I would close my eyes, the barrage of thoughts, the to do lists, the argument I've had with my boss, the conversation with my girlfriend, all that thing would just pop up and it would not let me have that quote unquote experience, whatever that may be. I don't even know what that was. And so 
I tried all the different modalities of meditation. Something where you focus on the light, something where you focus on the sound, something where you disassociate from the thoughts, something where you just watch your breath. Everything felt like an effort. Everything where I thought, okay, there's something I have to do. And the more I tried to do something, the further it went away from me, further that experience became more and more elusive. And here, I didn't know what to expect. When I learned the sky breath for the first time, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know this connection between the breath and the mind. I didn't know anything. I just showed up uh, reluctantly, if I may say. And so when I first time it hit me, I was just breathing and it took my mind to a state where there was no effort to meditate. It just, the mind just sank into meditation. And when I got out of that, I'm like, was I asleep? What, what happened? Just 30 minutes had passed by. And back then I was not known to be sitting still for 30 minutes without fidgeting around, moving around, getting up for something to do that. And so that was my first experience. And I'm like, this transformational in, in it. If nothing, I just sat still for 20 minutes. And that itself is a miracle for me. So there's so many secrets as I dove deeper into it, as I kind of explored that breathwork more and more in depth, I realized how much secrets are there in our breath. And like how you said, it's with us. We don't have to go look for it. We don't have to subscribe to some monthly subscription. It's just there constantly going in and out. It's just a little bit of awareness, just being more aware and being using a little bit skill to to use it can just unlock just different dimensions. Truly is an experience, is a gift that keeps on giving. Kushal, here's a question that arose as you were, well, actually several questions arose as you were describing this. The distinction in your mind, I am curious about how you would define or contextualize the difference between effort and allowing and also doing and being. Because I feel like these terminologies do come up in a lot of mindfulness practices. But I'm curious in your cosmology and your experience, what that experience was between trying effort and allowing and doing, which we are obsessed with in the Western world versus just to be, to allow ourselves to be. How do you define those things? And what is your experience of the difference in those things in your life? That's a beautiful question. You know, I think, and also the most misunderstood concept, which includes me. I didn't really appreciate the difference between doing and being when I started on this quest. I thought it's all about self-effort. You have to carve your own path. You have to do it. You have to prove it. And there was nothing around that. I mean, of course, there's community that helps you, but at the end of the day, it's just you doing, doing, doing effort. Then I later on learned that effort is just the language of the body. If you want to do something in, you know, with your body, you need to put an effort. If you want to build muscles, if you want to, you have to resist, you have to put effort. But at the level of the mind, the language is of effortlessness. You cannot control your mind through the realm of your own mind. If you try it, it doesn't go anywhere. And that's why in my personal experience, I struggled with mindfulness, where I felt there was some effort required to get to a certain place, which is, okay, closing your eyes and not thinking of something. If I ask you to close your eyes and not think of this podcast right now, that's the first thing that's going to come in your mind is this image of us on the screen, right? So mind cannot be controlled through its own realm, through its own boundaries. So you need a tool to get to that state. And there's a very delicate balance in here for how much effort to put and then 
Gurudev Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, he says, he said something very beautiful once. He said, it's like going on the train. You have to put an effort to buy the tickets, get to the platform, find the right platform, get on that train, carry your bags and get on that train. Once you get on that train, you drop the bags and, and just be. The train is carrying you. Then you walk up and down the train is not going to make you get there any faster. Right? So it's that beautiful combination of putting some effort to get there. But once you get there, skillfully dropping that effort. And again, I think in, from what I learned, it comes with some experience or some commitment that, okay, I want to experience that delicate balance between the effort and effortlessness. How much do I do? Oftentimes, we always overdo or overcompensate on either side. But that's a process of learning. It should not be something that, that should deter us from experiencing that sweet spot. But again, it's something that, that just comes. It's, it's an experience that just comes as, oh, yeah, you know, sitting for meditation, that's my effort. I've made an effort to, okay, clear my calendar and sit down to breathe. But once I'm there, I just let the breath do whatever it wants. Then there is no effort. Then there is no resisting the thoughts. Then there is no, even if I can't help, I mean, anyways, we can't help the thoughts that are coming. You know, it's a futile effort, but there is no effort there. Then you just sit and then just trust the process. This reminds me of a, a curiosity that I have, and I'm curious about your perspective on this. Through the years, as I've my passion for well-being and all these different facets of wellness has grown, I'm someone who's like a natural ambassador for these sort of things. Like when I experience something that I think is really great, when I read the data and study something, I just want to tell everybody about it. And that's why we have a podcast. <laughs> that's why I've done so much work digitally over the years. And the one thing that baffles me is how many people might be interested in something, but they struggle with the effort. There's a lot of resistance. And certainly, we've seen a lot of different reactions in the world during the pandemic mm. that no amount of data can necessarily convince somebody to do something that might be good for them or others. And I'm curious about your perspectives on resistance and especially how that ties into trauma. And, you know, going back to your quote, origin story, at least for this subject matter, you described how you were in that place of denial, perhaps like running away, your version of coping. And it took that journey for you to get to a place of even trying something and then sticking with it. And I think that's a huge challenge for someone, even if they're not experiencing massive trauma, Maybe they just feel so overwhelmed, burnt out, too busy, scared, and that adding just one more thing to try is hard for them or sticking with it. Like so many people struggle to create habits with consistency. And I'm curious what you've learned about these different forms of resistance over the course of your work and any tools that can help someone overcome the mental resistance to even doing something that's good for them. To that, I would say do what is easier. Choose the path of least resistance. If it's easier to not take that 20 minutes out and feel persist in the state that one is in, then do that. If you think that Netflix can fix it or drinking it out or smoking it away can fix it, do that. If you feel that's really helping. But if you think that you've probably hit a dead end with every one of these things that you've tried and perhaps it just happens to be a momentary thing where it 
feels like or it seems like it's giving you some joy, but it doesn't really deliver or doesn't live up to its promise, then make that commitment. I mean, commitment is essential in anything we do, right? From whether it's a relationship with a spouse or the relationship with yourself, that little bit of going out there and giving that, okay, I'm just going to write off the 20 minutes of my day. So what? Maybe if it doesn't work, so what? My experience is that once you try something and it really shows you the results, when you see the results, you don't have to wait for years. You don't have to wait for months. But I'm saying, let's say a week. You do that practice for a week and you see the results. You don't need anybody telling you to do that. You don't need any affirmations. Your experience draws you to that, to that space because you feel that ah, after I tried this, my mind was in a different space. After the, in the 25 years, I had never experienced a state of mind without any thoughts. And I don't need to see any data or I don't need to hear from someone that you need to do this in order to experience that state again. I just kept going back to it because I knew that that process was taking me there. And, and so it's, it's very natural. Put Again, going back to Jason's earlier, little effort to get there, little intention. You set an intention. Nothing works without an intention. Use intention, little bit of attention, and then watch it manifest. You just little bit of that, and then you see how you feel it. And then if it's not for you, then see what is it. But I tell everyone, you have to give it a fair try. You have to give it, even if you want to anything for that matter, you want to learn a musical instrument or you go to gym, you practice it one day and don't practice it for 10 days and you come back again. It doesn't work. That's so true. A little bit of effort and commitment really takes you long way. And I think the practice that I experience two days a week, I have seen so many people who have trouble sleeping, who have who are dealing with their own versions of 9-11 in their life, right? Which are sometimes even more telling than what I've been through. One experience of this sky breath, and I see them change. I see their faces change. I see them getting off the meds. You know, I've seen some of the veterans who come back from war and imagine their state of consciousness. It's so riddled with such deep, deep scars, deep, deep impressions. And they do this practice and they get off the cocktail of meds that they have been pumping in their system. So I just encourage, just try a breath work, you know, try it and give it a fair try. We are in a world with very short attention span. You know, you scroll through it and if it doesn't appear to you in worthy of your seven second of attention span, you move on. But this space, you need to, you need to carve out a little time for yourself. I think you owe it to yourself. We are usually not the top on our own list. You know, we do everything. We take care of our friends. We take care of our work. We take care of our, our loved ones, but we seldom take care of ourselves. And I think we owe it to ourselves. Kushal, you said something before when you were talking about getting into these practices and you mentioned the word, the void, and it instantly reminded me of a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. It's a longer quote, but the amended portion is, if you gaze for long enough into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. And this has always sat with me, and, and my interpretation of this quote from Nietzsche has evolved over the years, but by you saying the void, to me, the void and the abyss can be used interchangeably. As you stared into your void, first of all, that's a two-part question. What kind of surprising, 
uncomfortable or maybe even frightening things did you look at within yourself that perhaps you had never looked that deeply into within your own soul, your own beingness? But this void, the second half of the question, how did this shape your relationship to the materialism of the external world? You talked about having this successful Wall Street career, being part of startups, clearly surrounded by what many would consider the bastion of capitalism and materialism, Wall Street, people associated with that. So as you stared into this void, Kushal, what came up for you? What arose to be looked at and loved and understood? And ultimately, how has this practice shaped your relationship to finances, money, materialism, the external world? Yeah, I think the first time when I experienced that void or when that void stared at me like a menacing beast, it was very uncomfortable. I wanted to run away. I want to do everything in my human potential to not face that void. And that's when I started distracting myself by traveling, by doing this, by, you know, going out, by meeting friends. But ironically, I even learned how to fly, a, fly an airplane to get rid of my fears. But it was just to get rid of my void. I, I was ready to go to any extent to distract myself away from the void. You know, but... You know, it's a beautiful quote. I've never heard about this quote before, but I'm going to Google it after this. But what I learned from my teacher is it doesn't help when you run away from the void. You have to learn to shake hands with your void. You have to learn to be with that void because unless you be with it, it's just going to be a, just a mere distraction that will keep bringing you back to that space. So wanting to shy away or shun away from that void really was was something that did not work. What really helped was kind of look into the eye and to be with it. But how do you do it? Right? You just sit and, and look into something. Like, how do you do it? I didn't know how to do it. Right? And many people who are new to this, like, okay, fine, look into your void. But, but how? And the first thing, it was first moment for me was that realization was that it was okay to not be okay. When I looked into the void, the first thing that, that started coming up was my patterns. The patterns that made me do certain things. Sanskrit, there's a beautiful word uh, called samskaras. And the English word scar has its root in this word samskara. These are the patterns in our nervous system, in our consciousness. Any experience, any life experience that you go through leaves these impressions in our nervous system. And the longer these, you reel in this pattern, these impressions, they become patterns. For example, going for a coffee every morning. You get up, you want a coffee. First day, you have a coffee. All right. Next day, you want, that was a good experience. You want another coffee. Third day, one more coffee because that last two days you enjoy. Now it has become a cow path in your consciousness. It's become like a lesion. Fourth day, if you don't find a coffee, you're miserable. So that's just a simple example of a, a neural pattern that we have created in our consciousness. A pattern that is pleasant wants you to have that thing more. A pattern that is painful wants you to resist that thing, right? Coffee, money, fame. You've tried it, you want it. That's just the pattern you want to keep going after. Something that's painful, the memories of a loss, of trauma, you want to resist. And that's an aversion. So mind, instead of being with the, what you have in the moment, constantly keeps flapping between these cravings and aversions, cravings and aversions. 
And it gives it an excuse to step out of the present moment, where the life is, where the joy is. And there's tons of literature out there talking about the power of now, right? It's, it's not something anybody has not heard of in present context, but, but how do you do it? How do you keep your mind in the now, right? Can you just, going back to that concept of effort, can you put an effort to keep the mind in the now? It doesn't. But it's through this, in my personal experience, where this effort did not help. It was this walking on this path, doing these practices, this breath work, this meditation, helped me kind of maintain my bearing, you know, helped me kind of going towards what is. And it gave me that strength to be who I am, to be comfortable with, with my patterns as they were getting the breath work or well, the sky breath does it. It cleanses these impressions. But while it does that, it doesn't happen overnight. While it does that, you, those patterns still keep coming up. They keep showing up in your life. The one thing I realized that over a period of time as I was doing it is that if I just in the moment, if I can just learn to be in the moment, it didn't matter what I pursued. I initially thought that going after my own ambitions was anti-meditation, was anti-spirituality, or, or meditation was anti-progress, that you have to be a monk who sells his Ferrari and, and give up everything and go to a cave in Himalayas and, and meditate. But what I learned was exactly the opposite, that it does not have to be so. The, the whole point of this whole practice is that it allows you to enjoy this moment as it is. You can be completely immer uh, immersed in the pursuits, in the not resisting the pleasures that you get from the objects of senses. Enjoy them because that's why we have these senses. I want to hear the best music. I want to taste the best food. I want to have the best that the life can offer to me while being centered within, while not feeling that if I don't get that, I'm suddenly so miserable. And that's what this breath work gave me, that strength to be okay if I didn't have that. But at the same time, gave me the courage and stability to go after it with all I had. So being very still inside, but being very dynamic outside, not resisting ambition, not resisting progress, not resisting pleasures, but at the same time, not being so crestfallen if I didn't get any of that. Or so heartbroken if someday I absolutely fell flat and I realized that I made a mistake. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I also wanted to say the visual imagery, Kushal, of a monk driving a Ferrari was a fantastic mental image. I was just amazing. And imagining this monk being totally unattached, being like, yeah, I have this Ferrari, but it doesn't define who I am. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it also leads me to... A question because I want to hear more about the journey with your company, Elements Truffles. And one thing I love about that, your brand is I know like the experience stuck with me. I felt so present in the moment when I first tried it and saw the packaging and it was created with so much intention. And it's interesting because well, it must be fascinating, I imagine, for you to run a chocolate business because people have a lot of different associations with chocolate. And it hasn't been until semi-recently, like maybe in the past few years, that people even realize that you can enjoy chocolate without guilt. I mean, so much of chocolate was like cheap and full of sugar. And when people would think of it, they're like, ooh, this is like my guilty pleasure and I can only have a little of this. And also something that you touched upon earlier briefly was that, or even like the coffee example, 
how you can find a lot of joy and, and pleasure in something the first time you have it. But if you continue to have it, it becomes a habit and it might be less pleasurable. You're not as aware of it. And one of my favorite mindfulness exercises is to take a, a small piece of chocolate and to let it melt slowly in my mouth without chewing it or swallowing it too fast and just like noticing the full flavor of it and how my body's reacting. And it's such a phenomenal thing. So for the listener, if you haven't done that yet, like just a tiny piece of high quality chocolate is a meditation in itself if you just let it melt in your mouth and that's all you focus on with your eyes closed and everything. And when I think of Elements Truffles, that's a brand that I would probably buy to do that exercise because it energetically feels like it was designed for that. And I'm curious, like, why did you end up creating a truffle company given that clearly you're passionate and knowledgeable about other mindfulness practices? What came first, first of all, your work in, in passion for breath work or elements, how does elements complement that? Or is it just completely separate, which I, I can't imagine is the answer, but I don't want to assume. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for the kind words about the chocolates. But it started as a passion project for my wife and I. And we both are not professionally trained chocolatiers. We have no professional background in culinary. We actually sometimes make fun of ourselves where we have between us seven professional degrees, none of which is related anyway remotely to making chocolates. But uh, at some point of time, we realized that we, we wanted to do something that we both were truly passionate about and we wanted to do it together. You know, she was a trader on Wall Street herself. After my Wall Street career, I was pursuing other startup interests. And we were literally living like roommates, seeing each other on weekends. And, you know, let's do something together and do something that we both are really, really passionate about and something that truly represents or truly helps us create an impact, even if, if it's one chocolate bar at a time, even if it's one tiny morsel at a time. But we wanted to really do something, an effort, an adventure, which has a lot of heart in it. Because everything that we had done before was purely capitalistic, if I may say. The focus was just on becoming successful in the eyes of the world what world con considers it success, which is mostly bottom line. And so we really said, okay, what is it that really makes us happy if we were to do something together? And if you and I were to do something together, what is it that really make us happy? And two things that came up get kept coming, actually three things, meditation, Ayurveda, and chocolates, cacao. You know, we, we used to call ourselves chocolate snobs where we would just travel the world looking for the highest quality of chocolates and, you know, pride ourselves in, in finding some of the most treasured Criollo beans and chocolates made out of that, very rare beans. And I'm like, all right, just let's deflect our passion into something we can really, really, you know, keep ourselves busy with every day. And so Ayurveda, as you, you may or may not know, it's, it's the science of nutrition, it's a science of well-being that goes back 5,000 years. It's considered the sister science to yoga, like how yoga focuses on body and mind. Ayurveda focuses on nutrition, what you put inside your body to sustain you. And, you know, what I love about Ayurveda is, again, this comes around full circle. Growing up, Ayurveda was a big part of our life. Our recipes from my grandma, our food, our lifestyle was really attuned to Ayurveda at some point, but I had absolutely no appreciation for it, you know? It was just something I'd taken for granted. 
But when we came back and as we started meditating and as we started doing more breath work, we automatically saw our eating patterns change, our nutrition change. And we realized that we were going back to the roots. And so we thought, and Ayurveda talks about the mental and physical well-being as one unit. You know, it talks about swastha, which means the health, overall health, being swastha, the word Sanskrit word swastha means being established in yourself. It was like complete, it was encapsulating everything that we really were doing was aligned with what, what we wanted to do. And we thought, why not bring Ayurveda to the world wrapped in a bar of chocolate? Nobody never says you know, no to a chocolate. So why not kind of bring these both together in a way that it creates a wholesome snack, a wholesome a dessert, like how you said. I even was feeling uncomfortable, if you say, to use the word guilt-free in because, you know, food should not have guilt associated with it. So that associating the word guilt with the food was like a big no-no for me in the first place. So I said, let's create something where people don't have to turn around and look at the nutritional label. If it's from elements, it has to be clean. It has to be holistic. It has to be created with all these, like the beautiful practices that have been kept alive for over 5,000 years, kind of encapsulated in all these things. For example, turmeric or ashwagandha, herbs of Ayurveda, they are not pleasant. I mean, if you try to eat them by themselves, they are yuck. It's just not... So to integrate it in our modern diet is absolutely unthinkable in a meaningful way, in a sustainable way. If I do it right, and credit goes to my wife for coming up with these beautifully crafted recipes where you don't even taste this, the flavor profile of the cacao masks this unpleasantness of this very, very good adaptogens and superfoods and spices and herbs, you know, it's like a win-win. So that's kind of where it, it came from, where, and we wanted to have that heart in this entire end-to-end product. You know, we started sourcing cacao, you know, we wanted to create a lot of cacao that comes in some of these chocolates doesn't come from the right spaces. There's a lot of child labor. There's a lot of unethical practices. And so when we started looking for cacao, we had gone to Ecuador before looking for the right cacao. We had heard a lot about it. And we found that these there were these farmers, the small farmers, small and mid-sized farmers, who were giving away their crop to some middlemen who would just pay them price of a song to just and promised to take their entire crop uh, because these farmers did not even have the means to transport their cacao. They didn't have the vehicles to take it to the markets. And so we partnered with a very, very, you know, mindful person who aligned the same with our philosophy and agreed to send trucks to these farmers to get their produce and send it to us. And it was, when we started doing these things, it was unthinkable how we'd be able to do it. But once you have that intention, kind of consciousness supports you. And so right from paying the fair wages to these farmers, getting it from them, building a relationship with them. So not like, okay, I'm just going to use your cacao and next time I'm going to go to someone else who's going to give it to me at a cheaper price. You know, building that kind of community with these farmers, ethical sourcing, getting the right ingredients, you know, creating the right product with that approach of not taking any shortcuts. And then... Whatever we sell, we also give back 25% of those profits towards the underprivileged children, their education in the tribal areas of India through this initiative called Care for Children. So we wanted to do something where end-to-end there was a lot of integrity and every 
And now and then we have to keep reminding ourselves because there's always another opportunity where you say, hey, you knock your prices a little bit and we give you a huge opportunity to get placed in this big store nationwide. And like, no, you know, let's not turn this into another Wall Street venture. Let us grow it on our own terms. And so Element Truffles has come together with doing a lot of things that we've always wanted to do, but really didn't see an opportunity in our day-to-day jobs. There were little elements of what we wanted to do, but not everything end-to-end. So we said, all right, you know what? We'll just create something on our own and integrate everything in it and create this product. And that's how Element Truffles was born. I have two questions, Kushal. First of all, when you talk about Ayurveda, Whitney and I both have sort of a, a basic understanding of the doshas. I am definitely primarily vata with some pitta. It's a very airy with some fire. I have friends that are dominant kapha. So when you're talking about formulating these truffles and you're integrating these Ayurvedic herbs, these ancient herbs from this you know 5,000 year old culinary tradition, say if I'm a vata pitta and, I, and I'm like, I, I need to get these elements truffles. And you're like, ah, but that one's for kapha. Like, have you structured these in a way that is so, how do I say this, specific for the doshas, or could I enjoy all of them regardless of my dosha? Yeah, it's a great question and the one that I get asked many times. So there is an element of using these specific herbs that balance a particular dosha, but I would shy away from saying that these chocolates are not medicinal. These chocolates are, they represent Ayurveda in its true sense, which means no do's or don'ts, right? That's what Ayurveda says, no rigid rules. And that's something that kept me going back to Ayurveda. It's like everything I tried before, like different types of diets, or look at these current diets today, keto or high fat diets, like low carb diets. All these diets have very strict do's and don'ts that you do this, you don't do this, right? You absolutely have to just adhere to certain principles and try. Ayurveda is exact opposite. Ayurveda says you indulge responsibly. Do everything, but just in the right proportion at the right time, at the right time of the day, right time of the year, and you enjoy life, right? So what we recommend through our chocolates is, yes, there are certain elements in here, certain herbs in here, which kind of are suited towards your own blueprint, which is your own constitution. But most of them are very generic. We don't want to create another set of do's and don'ts for people to say, hey, can I eat this chocolate bar or can I not eat this chocolate? No, eat whatever. At the end of the day, chocolate is pitta aggravating. Chocolate has that, that fire thing. So to say that these chocolates are Ayurvedic would not be very sincere. So what we say is this chocolate are Ayurveda inspired. It is meant to give you that, even if it makes you curious, what is my type? What kind of herbs or spices or eating habits should I cultivate by eating these chocolates? The purpose has been served. You can take, you know, we have certain chocolates that are tailored to certain doshas. And by that, I mean the ingredients in that, for example, are one of our best sellers is rose and cardamom. It's a very calming, I see you, Jason, going that, but frankly, it's not my favorite one. It's... It's an amazing flavor. People swear by it. For some reason, I'm not a floral chocolate type person. You know, I love more purists like black lava salt with turmeric. You know what's very interesting is different people get drawn to different flavors 
based on their Ayurveda constitution. So if you are Pitta, you are Vata, you get drawn to certain smells and tastes in that moment. And that too, based on the different time of the day. In certain time of the day, when a certain element is more predominant, you will gravitate towards certain type of food or certain type of aroma. Some other type of day towards the later part of the evening, let's say, you will go for something that's more calming, something more soothing. In the morning, you might want something that's more like fire aggravating to get you through the day. So long story short, we just created a big offering. We have about 15 flavors, but it's, you can take any one of them, which appeals to you, the whichever flavors that talks to you and enjoy it in like how, you know, she said, enjoy it in, in small amounts. Just even the most purest medicinal chocolate when consumed in excess can be not so good, right? So I don't want to, again, use the word guilt, but to just just exploring it, just enjoying it a little bit. I often, in the earlier years when we used to, for that validation, we would go to this trade shows. I mean, that's where I, I met you, right? And people's like, so how much do you recommend? I said, don't eat much. You just eat a tiny bit. This tiny bit should to pacify you or satisfy that sweet craving that devil you He's like, you're the first one who says, don't eat my chocolate. I'm like, no, I <laughs> just eat it, but indulge in the right amount. And that way you can eat anything throughout the year without feeling bad about it. I love that lesson because it ties into this conversation around like tuning into our habits and our purpose and really examining why are we drawn to certain things? Are we in alignment with what we're doing? And... On that note, I, I have one final question. Jason may have another, but mine is given that this episode comes out the day before 9-11 and given that this episode's also coming out during a lot of challenging times in the world overlapping each other, <laughs> just seems like we've got climate change and the pandemic and crisis in different parts of the world. And there's a lot of pain and sadness and Certainly, chocolate is a nice coping mechanism. Certainly, breath work is, as you've really clarified. Is there anything else that you would say to someone listening to this during all of these tough times and the anniversary of a, a really hard day for many people in this world? If you could tune it into your heart right now, what is a message that you would like to share with people who need some support from your perspective? I think like how you said, right, there will always be something going on. There is no way this world is going to let us be. There is always be something, some conflict going on in some part of the world or in some part of the mind that's going to keep us ready to throw us off our balance. That's the whole world. It runs on the opposites, right? Because there are opposites, this world is able to function in the way it can. Because there is a night, there is pain. That's why... You have appreciated joy in some moments. But I would say one thing that I learned is that pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. There's always going to be things around us, but the more time we take out to connect to ourselves, be that witness to what's going around, the more it allows us to disengage and take a dip into who we really are. This gives us an ability to disconnect. And I can't tell you how precious is that skill or that opportunity to disconnect, even if it is for five minutes, even if it is for 10 minutes. So I would say just take that time to disconnect. 
take that time to to connect with yourself. I think that's such a wonderful way to wrap this episode, Kushal. You're such a wealth of heartfelt wisdom, and we are so grateful for your openness in sharing your experiences, your story, and also giving people and the listeners and the watchers very specific takeaways if they are looking for new practices, new ways of addressing their trauma, trying to find more joy in their life, more pleasure. And I just love everything you shared. I mean, really, we could go on for hours with you. It feels like there's a connection and your spirit is so buoyant. And for me, just being in your energy, even though you're in New York City, we're here in LA, I feel... How do I explain how I feel after speaking to you? I feel more uplifted after speaking to you because knowing what you have experienced in your life and here decades later, coming from a place of service, creativity, joyfulness generosity. It shows me, and I'm sure it shows a lot of people tuning into this, the possibility that you can experience really horrific, traumatic things and come out on the other side of it with your heart whole, your heart open, and still giving a lot of love to this world. So thank you for being a living example of that, truly. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you guys. So for anyone who wants to dive into more of uh, Kushal's wonderful creative offerings in this world, we mentioned Elements Truffles. We will link to that website. I'm definitely going to order a batch because all it took was this interview for me to be like, I'm in. So you will see an order coming through from Jason Robel in your order queue. Well, I do think they're sold locally. Are they still available? Would you know off the top of your head, Kushal? I've seen them in Lassen's Market, which is one of our favorite markets in Los Angeles. I think they are Lassen's or Air One's. Air One, for sure. So, Jason, just a trip down the street, you could have some (laughs) in an hour. (laughs) Not coincidentally, I'm actually going to Lassen's later for a video shoot to pick up ingredients. So, I will go to the chocolate aisle in Lassen's, Kushal, and score myself, (laughs) if they are in stock, some of your wonderful truffles. If you don't find them, I'm definitely sending you both some from my favorites. So... (laughs) And also, uh, Beyond the Truffles, of course, we will link to uh, Kushal's new book. It's On a Wing and a Prayer. Is that correct? On a Wing and a Prayer. On a Wing and a Prayer. If you want to dive into more of of his wonderful wisdom, his story, especially so timely here celebrating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So, Kushal, thank you again from the bottom of our hearts, the top of our hearts, the side of our hearts, all the angles of our hearts. And it's just been an absolute pleasure having you here on the podcast. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Whitney. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.